In the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. Hi there, this is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble-rousers, where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. I'm Christina Rosales. I'm John Hinneberger. This is episode 12. 12. How you doing, Christina? It's Juneteenth. It is Juneteenth. Raise your hand if you went to a Texas public school and never learned about Juneteenth. Christina's hand is in the air. So in Laredo, they did not teach you about Juneteenth? I did not learn about Juneteenth at the Laredo public schools. And I actually didn't learn about Juneteenth. I'd heard of it, but I didn't learn much about it until I was a reporter at the Dallas Morning News. And there were celebrations all over Dallas um, with, uh, with uh, celebrating Juneteenth and uh, the emancipation. So, John, you're a history nerd. Do you want to explain what Juneteenth is? So, uh, um, in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, Union General Gordon Granger landed with a group of federal troops to occupy... Galveston, which was the state's most important port. And he proclaimed emancipation publicly in an address in Galveston to an assembled group of both white citizens and African-American citizens who had assembled to learn what was in store for Texas now that the Confederacy was finally defeated and the federal government was taking over military occupation of the state. And General Granger's order, which you can get off of the internet to read, advised the freedmen to uh, continue to work, uh, seek employment, don't move to the cities waiting for the federal government to do something because nothing was immediately coming. And uh, so this this was the moment of freedom. Uh, in Texas, the announcement of freedom in Texas, and the this, the recognition of this important date on June 19, 1865, has been picked up now all across the country, and indeed in some other parts of the world as well, and is celebrated as the Emancipation Day. And the following year, after this emancipation in Galveston, uh, Friedman organized uh, the first of what became an annual celebration of Juneteenth in Texas. So it. It was. It's interesting that a freedman, a freedman's group organized this. So, in in honor of them and to celebrate this contribution and this this emancipation uh, anniversary, we are talking today to Dr. Andrea Roberts. Uh, she is a Texas A and M uh, assistant professor of planning, and she is also the founder of the Texas Freedom Colonies Project. Uh, so this is a very informative episode, and we're excited that we can bring this to you. I'm Dr. Andrea Roberts. I'm a assistant professor uh, in urban planning at Texas A&M University. I'm also associate director, or uh, one of the associate directors of the Center for Housing and Urban Development um, and the College of Architecture at Texas A&M University. And I'm also the founder of the Texas Freedom Colonies Project, which since 2014 has been a social justice and educational initiative focused on 
the preservation of uh, historic black settlements uh, in the way of focusing on their history, how they were founded, and the grassroots initiatives dedicated to uh, preserving them. What are freedom communities or freedmen's towns? Um, can you explain for someone who might not have any idea about what that is, um, what it is? So I think what we're most used to hearing is freedmen's towns. And that's, of course, associated with a specific era, uh, era in time, right? So we know that there was a Freedmen's Bureau established um, after the end of the Civil War. And uh, this, this Freedmen's Bureau was meant to be a sort of uh, aspect of a Marshall Plan, you know, for the United States, if you will, after the Civil War. And of course, you know, the Marshall Plan happened later, but I think it's the concept of an institution that's meant to um, help transition the country from utter chaos to order, especially with uh, the emancipation of enslaved peoples. And so the Freedmen's Bureau, as part of that, it had several initiatives, the starting of a bank, in some cases, the starting of schools. It got a late start in Texas. Um, and in Texas, it was mainly focused on establishing um, actual labor contracts so that if you were a freed person, you were establishing um, your right to enter into labor in a contract method to make sure that you were compensated for your labor. And so this specific period of time in which we had a Freedmen's Bureau, the Reconstruction Era, only ran from about 18, um, nationally from 1865 to 1877. That's it. That's Reconstruction Era. That's the period with, in which we had a Freedmen's Bureau and so very often that's the term that gets bandied about for all historic black settlements. But if we think about the period in which African-Americans were attaining land and establishing communities after emancipation, that's a period that stretches much longer everywhere from in Texas from 1865, because of, of course we had the delayed uh, emancipation um, compared to the rest of the United States. So that runs from 1865 all the way through the 1920s. And so we look at the work, if we look at the work of historian, uh, historian Sitton and Conrad, who wrote the book Freedom Colonies, uh, which is about independent black settlements established in the shadow of Jim Crow. This is from 1865 to the 1920s in which African-Americans in Texas alone founded over 557 historic black settlements throughout the entire state. And so we limit ourselves in thinking about what it is to be a free black person, what it means to establish a free black community. If we think only about freedmen's towns, which were founded in a specific period of time. But if we look at the complete continuum in our capacity as African-Americans, and I descend from freedom colonies, we look at these intentional communities founded by a cluster of black landowners we're talking about literally hundreds in Texas. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about 10th Street in Dallas or we're talking about Freedman's Town, very often these places call themselves the Freedman's Town. Um, there were multiple Freedman's Towns throughout the United States and in Texas, one of which was 10th Street in Dallas, another of which was Fourth uh, Ward um, in Houston. Um, but those are just two of, as I said, literally hundreds of historic Black settlements. Andrea, what to what extent are the creation of freedmen's communities a function of people trying to get away 
from the plantation, and to what extent is it um, a function of people wanting to find a place where they could buy land? So that's an interesting question because uh, it's it's sort of a yes to both. Um, but I would say it's important to understand that very often the history of African-Americans is framed as a reaction to whiteness and white power. And what's so important about freedom colonies is that they were an expression of black agency that's not rooted or centered in always in reaction to whiteness. These were free black spaces because they decentered whiteness. They were some of the few instances in which everything was not focused on resistance to whiteness. And so to do that, they established these communities and attain land in some of the few places where they were able to. So what does that mean? That means an overrepresentation of African-Americans um, in these communities and places that we would refer to as bottom land. That is places that are disproportionately hit by disaster because they're flood prone, because that was the land that was available. We uh, should remember that we had the Homestead Act in Texas in uh, the 1860s. However, African-Americans were not able to take advantage of publicly available land like whites could because we had the black codes which prohibited the distribution of publicly available land to African-Americans for some years. And so we have this built-in delay of being able to attain land and settle and homestead it in the ways that whites were able to freely in Texas. So the African-Americans attain land in a few different ways. Um, one, yes, they were interested in safety, um, but that sort of took care of itself because they were taking the land that a lot of whites were not interested in anyway. Um, and then number two, they were interested in being near a water source, of course, and they were interested in places where they could cluster together um, and sort of circle the wagons um, in a sense. Um, and usually uh, there were places uh, where they might have been able to found a school or a church nearby. And so uh, they attain this land, if not through um, outright purchase, because some were able to accumulate uh, money and land shortly after emancipation, uh, they would squat, or what's technically the legal term is adverse possession, in which you attain land and actually make it um, productive or show, prove that it's productive after three to seven years and go to the courthouse and declare that. Well, the problem is, of course, if you go to the, if you're an African-American in let's say 1901 and you go to the courthouse and declare that you're the owner of all this land, you were simultaneously making yourself a target of local white vigilantes in some instances who would run you off, for your, off of your land um, in the middle of the night or intimidate you off of your land or make it difficult for you to live there. So even um, though these communities were an effort to be left alone and be self-sufficient and away um, from white political intimidation um, and violence, very often they were still uh, targets of violence. Um, and so these were, again, not just about being in reaction to white folks, but just wanting to establish intentional free spaces in which blackness was not under a microscope. So you have done oral histories. You've, you've, you've spoken to a lot of people connected to these uh, uh, freedom colonies or, or historic black settlements. 
what did they look like? What did what did they feel like? What did you see uh, if you were standing there back then? So that's a very good question, and that's part of the reason that um, the work that I'm doing is um, a combination of the individual work that I've done, as you mentioned, oral histories, what we call ethnographic research, which is a lot of actually spending time with folks in community. Um, and what I found in my research is that it can't be done without co-researching with the descendants of these communities, because you have to understand how they conceptualize these communities, what they remember hearing from their elders. Um, the definitions of these communities don't neatly follow in um, the framework we have for community in urban planning. The boundaries are not easily established. What it means to be a substantive citizen of these places, be a part of these places, is not always based on a bloodline or heredity or things that are documented um, at the courthouse. And so what I found was a lot of uh, a freedom colony diaspora, I call it. So it may be uh, that I attended a, a homecoming annual celebration at a freedom colony. This is where people return back to the community on an annual basis. It's a two-day uh, celebration that mostly happens in the confines of a church and you raise money during that to take care of the cemetery. So the core institutions that I might find that remain in a freedom colony would be the church and the cemetery. And very often there may be a cluster of historic homesteads, but there may only be about 20 individuals that live in this community now. I'm talking about an urban context, I'm talking about a suburban context, and I'm talking about rural context. So there are freedom colonies everywhere. It's not a rural concept, it's not an urban concept. They're everywhere because growth and sprawl happened on top of freedom colonies. And so what I found was a few of these remaining anchor institutions. I found that if you came to, went to these communities in the middle of one of their annual celebrations or a reunion, you would find some 150 to 200 people who considered themselves citizens of these places who either still own land there or in some way they tied their identity of who they were as a people to these places. During the year where there wasn't a celebration, you might only find 20 people there. And if you go by a census map and, and look at the dots and, and look at where there's an accumulation of African-Americans and say, well, I've taken care of the issues and concerns of black communities because I've looked at the map and I look at where the census tells me there's an accumulation of black citizens. What I found when studying freedom colonies is that that's a very inadequate way to fully represent the interest of African-Americans because freedom colonies are almost these places that um, are episodic in terms of being able to really see that they exist. Um, because there are hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of people who have ties to these places and still are committed to their preservation, even though they don't live there full time. And so it really uh, turns on its head the idea of what it means to um, do urban planning in the public interest, because we don't fully understand our publics. And I call these uh, freedom colonies really hidden black publics. Um, because we have an inadequate understanding of, of what it means for these places to exist or survive. Because, so you asked me a very simple question, what do they look like? Well, they look like um, Stafford, where there's a Fifth Street community. 
that's in the in the middle of uh, or surrounded by Fort Bend County suburbs. It looks like Sunnyside, which is founded in the early 1900s and is actually a freedom colony, but we now know it as um, a uh, urban community in 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 Houston. Um, it looks like uh, Shankleville community in Newton County. It looks like Dixie community, um, a freedom colony in Jasper County, Texas. Um, it looks like so many places, uh, Riceville community, which is in Southwest Houston. And I could go on and on, but the thing to, I think, recognize is that very often we don't recognize the places because we have certain definitions of, um, African-American places, and I'm actually writing about this right now, about these assumptions we have about what it means to care about Black community as an urban planner and the assumptions that urban planners bring to the table that perpetuate the erasure of these hidden Black publics and freedom colonies, because we're not trained to see them or listen to them. Your um, website has a uh, GIS map on it with hundreds of these colonies, communities plotted on it. It's striking how many you've been able to identify. And I think what you're telling us is that uh, these are not simply a rural or exurban phenomena, but they might have been rural or exurban at one time, mostly. But they have come to be incorporated in cities so that we see in many Texas cities the the origins of what are still today African-American neighborhoods lie in these free, freedom colonies. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, that's absolutely, that, that's completely fair. Um, if we look at the accumulation of land that really was the catalyst for being able to form these communities, there was a time at which, if we look at 1870, African-Americans in Texas owned uh, 2% of all farmland in Texas. By 1910, African-Americans owned some 31% of all farmland in Texas. Nearly a third of all farmland in Texas was owned by African-Americans in 1910. That is certainly not the case now. It's a much lower number. And it's if we had more funding that supported actual counting of the farm census, <laughs> we would know the exact number. Um, but the, the larger point being that there was a time when um, freedom colonies were largely a rural phenomenon. And the reason why freedom colonies are still somewhat recognizable and we still have ties to them is that during the Great Migration, African Americans in Texas were able to travel anywhere from 30 minutes to three hours and get to the rural freedom colony. Whereas if you were in uh, Mississippi and you migrated during the Great Migration to a place like uh, Chicago, much farther, you're not going to get back to Mississippi that often. And so we have in Texas a unique situation in that so many people were able to migrate out to large cities and still remain connected to this, this distinct kind of rural free um, way of living and even imported some of that into the historic black settlements that they founded within major cities. As a historian and a planner, could you help us understand a little bit about how uh, cities and state law and practices and private real estate development practices have reacted with these communities 
and how the reaction to freedom colonies has been different on the part of government and the dominant white political power structure than it has been to white neighborhoods. In other words, what's the how did how did these neighborhoods get treated versus how did uh, how did traditional white settlements, neighborhoods, subdivisions get treated? So that's I think the first way I can talk about that is municipal status, right? So there's a local government code that and and there's the U.S. Census, which are are the two kind of immediate mediums for understanding or what defines a place legally, right? So you have, you know, population thresholds, and then you have whether or not a place is incorporated, meaning its own place with its own leadership, its own boundaries, its own town, um, or is it in unincorporated in which it's run under the auspices of the county, which we know in Texas counties um, have no planning authority. Um, they do issue some permits and they do have certain things they do that where they behave as a planning function, but there is no county plan as you might have in a state like California. And so you have um, more than 90% uh, of uh, historic black settlements. If you look on that um, GIS uh, map, there are 357 of the 557 places that are on that map where crowdsourcing and doing grassroots and ethnographic work in partnership with communities to get the rest of that other 200, as well as the names of ones we don't even know exist. So we don't even know the full universe of these places. It's important to remember that. Um, but developers, uh, planners, um, even preservationists, um, the way that we define place means that when you come upon a freedom colony, if you don't have um, representation that you can go talk to and touch and say, hey, are you in charge of this cemetery? Are you here full time? Where's your address? Um, is your name the same name that's on the title of this property? The answers to these questions often lead to um, the disempowerment of freedom colonies and of people who live there or own things there because you don't have clear titles very often. You have uh, land that's passed down through heirs. You have heir property in which you have multiple heirs all over the place and partition sales um, that you know, jeopardize these, uh, the ownership of these places. Um, you have um, difficulty in identifying a settlement pattern. So why does that matter? Well, if there's a developer and or even a city that means well and says, hey, we're going to land bank and I see that there's all of these different parcels in which are open or um, there's nothing built on them and they'd be perfect for infill. Why don't we do a community land bank? Um, let's accumulate all those parcels and let's you know, define this as available land for the kind of development we like. Well, very often those parcels, if through, viewed through the perspective of longtime residents of the area, might very well tell you that um, the line you're about to draw around these parcels of land is actually um, dividing a community in half or um, making what was a whole community nearly indistinguishable. And so there's not really um, an effort to uh, keep communities as they were unless, unless they're in the class of like black meccas. 
because people who are in urban planning or um, concerned with African-Americans in Texas, again, have a completely urban-centric viewpoint. And so as a result, they don't see the connectedness between, um, as I said before, all of these communities in counties, you know, if we look at East Harris County, for example, you have historic black settlements all over the eastern half of Harris County um, that no one pays much attention to what's going on with those communities because they're not smack dab in the middle of the urban core where there's a where where developers have established that there's a high demand and that you know uh, people want to live near the urban core now. Um, so you have uh, not just development trends um, of demand, but you have legal. Uh, definitions of place. Again, I keep coming back to that, um, that make it very easy for developers to pick off individual landowners because they don't see a whole community or place. It makes cities who may think or have good intention um, to actually rearrange um, these historic settlement patterns or groupings of people that define place um, in a way that erases them. And then in the process, disempowers them as a whole community, because you can just think of, you know, well, that's just one individual structure, you can say, or that's a one individual house, or that's one individual cemetery that obviously is orphaned or abandoned. And this disaggregates um, the power of African-Americans who have these ways of, of connecting or being affiliate with, with a place that we haven't learned as planners and activists to really um, capitalize on in the right way. Because again, we have a particular frame and way of looking at and defining places. There, there's a real struggle for, for preserving these communities and, and not enough understanding anywhere. You know, there's, there's nobody who, who I can think of in a lot of cities who really understands preserving them and the nuances of of how they work and why they're important. You know, what do you what do you tell people who are well-meaning in cities and counties who are, you know, thinking about about development in their own frame? I mean, what do you tell them about these historic settlements and and why they're important? So it's it's different in a different in, in in different instances. So, for example, I think that when we think of city government, we think of the opportunities, city or county government. We think of the opportunities to engage around these issues. We have to look at um, the way um, historic preservation and the way um, that um, protection of places actually works. And so we have mechanisms at our disposal before we make it into okay, it's time to go down and speak at city council and make them aware of these awful developers over here doing this thing in this continual you know, reactionary loop. What we could be doing is really building the capacity of organizations such as our county historical commissions. Um, those are groups that interface with, if it's the county or the city historical commission, those are really kind of the firewall um, between um, bad zoning decisions and developers um, and these historic communities. But there's not enough young people on these boards. There's not enough people of color on these boards. 
and there are really, you know, a lot of well-meaning whites, but the there we're not using uh, these mechanisms um, for, you know, standing in the gap that we could be using. So there's that piece before we even get to how do we fight developers. Um, also, there's a lot of of support available to developers to incentivize them um, to leverage heritage and culture, right? So, um, you know, uh, say what you will about the neoliberal state and tax credits, but there are some instances in which, but for the tax credits, um, you wouldn't have the adaptive reuse of particular uh, businesses and warehouses and, and houses in a place like San Antonio, right? So um, there are those instances in which there are benefits, you know, that can be bundled um, for developers to incentivize them, um, not doing a tabula rasa of like, let's tear it down, but how do we work with what we have? There's also bundling in this idea of preservation with concerns about the environment. Um, because the, the oldest building is the greenest building. And so very often, um, and often historic preservation uh, creates more jobs um, than, it than it does to build new properties, believe it or not. So there's a way that we could be looking more holistically at, at what it means to preserve buildings and preserve these communities um, that will uh, lead uh, developers to really see what they're doing as part of a larger um, economic development piece. The way we define economic development, again, is uh, all developers care about is profit. Um, all they're here to do is build things and tear things, uh, you know, new things and then tear things down. Um, and they get all the tax credits because they create a little, you know, a few jobs and they gentrify. So we have this very simplistic story, right? And in many instances, that is what's happening. But there are nonprofit developers. Uh, there are CDCs. Um, there are different developers. And there's a way that we need to be um, working with developers in a more proactive fashion. So what does that look like? The county historical commissions I mentioned, the city uh, landmark commissions, instead of them being rubber stamp organizations, there need to be more opportunities for developers to have to go through a series of workshops and trainings before they can work with the city or work in a particular area of the city. They should get um, uh, sort of orientations to different communities that they have to take before they can work in a community. There's ways to acclimate people and teach them to see differently, incentivize other behaviors. Um, rather than continually being in a reactionary posture. And I think that's fundamentally what needs to happen is a more proactive bottom-up look at what it takes to properly educate and incentivize the kind of development behaviors we want. Dr. Roberts, when you talk to people who, um, who, who live, you know, the, the people who still live in, in settlements um, that are historical, you know, for example, we spoke with the 10th Street residents and yes. we asked, what do you, what do you want? What do you yeah. want this to look like? And they said, we want, we want the city to preserve the character of our neighborhood, yes. but we want to, we want to grow. We want to, we yeah. want to look, yeah. we want to look like a, a community. Um, you know, what do you, what is your reaction to that? And what do you, 
what else do you hear when, when maybe you ask that question of people? Yeah. So, um, I, during the course of my dissertation research, so I've been working pretty, um, steadfastly on this issue, um, even though I worked in city government and for consulting firms and in grassroots um, nonprofits and in politics for 12 to 15 years, you know, before I decided to go back and get my PhD, um, you know, where I'd always had these interactions with historic black communities and, and I come from these historic black settlements. So it wasn't always as a sort of outside spectator, like what do you people really want? I never had to talk to people that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would hear, though, when doing my research is that people were interested in reversing the trend of disinvestment in their communities, right? They wanted um, equitable investment in their communities, in their infrastructure. Um, they wanted to be heard during annual planning processes. Um, they wanted um, their communities recognized um, during uh, disaster recovery. They didn't want to just, you know, hear, okay, well, this is what we have for low-income people. This is what we have for Black people. No, this is a community. This is where we live. We are a distinct group of people, and we would like the character of this place to retain, be retained. Um, no, we don't need to live somewhere else that's, you know, better because it's near more opportunity. Bring the opportunity over here. That's what I would hear from people. They were interested in how do we Um, not necessarily bring it back to some form of glory, but how do we help people retain ownership of their land? You know, they wanted something to pass on to their families. Um, They're interested in, you know, land retention strategies that made sense for them and their families. They're interested in, um, when they talk about community character, how do we um, make sure um, that this particular church is preserved or how do we, if we want to develop historic districts or rather apply for historic districts, go through that entire process, where's the money available for repairs because of deferred maintenance and redlining? Many of these communities, they didn't have access to the types of home improvement loans from banks that would have enabled them to um, keep their houses Uh, within what we call in preservation, the period of significance. So if you decide an entire area is significant because of something that happened in 1965, every house that connotes that era and that is connected to that particular event or person, all of those are historically significant. This is according to the um, National Historic uh, Preservation Act and the criteria associated with the National Register of Historic Places. And so what we don't have enough of is efforts to make that possible. And so there's people interested in preservation. I talked to them and they would like to preserve their homes. They would like to bring back the neighborhood character. We have a good model for that in a place like San Antonio, where they have a home repair program that goes to the lowest of the lowest income areas. They have tons of historic districts in San Antonio. Why? Because there's an understanding that preservation goes hand in hand with place preservation and affordable housing preservation. So at the intersection of this are are freedom colonies. There's not this, um, there's an understanding in San Antonio with their STAR program that if you help people continue to repair their homes, then they can keep those homes within the area 
or rather within the period of historic significance. And they can qualify for uh, tax credits and they can also do other things to lower their tax liability and they can become eligible for other grants. And so we have to have this integrated perspective that's not preservationist over here, affordable housing over there, people who don't want to change things over there. Everything has to be, you know, like an insect in amber. You know, there's a lot of presumptions, I think, about what preservation is and not enough dialogue about how we share interests across these different subfields in planning. So I, I think a big part of this is, is needing to, um, you know, sort of talk across the silos a bit more as well. And in listening to people from these communities, they don't care about those silos. Yeah. <laughs> they really, really don't. What they care about is um, why is my street not cleaned up? Why are there piles of, of things from the latest hurricane still on my block? Why is it taking so long? I don't care about, you know, who's fighting over what or what civil rights case. I want service now because you look in that community and they get service now and I don't. So there's real, real basic, um, you know, consciousness um, of needing the city, county, government, uh, district, uh, tax increment zone, whatever it is, to be more responsive, number one. And people want to own and retain, you know, retain control and ownership of their communities. And they want to preserve these spaces. And they want ways to attract um, young people back to their communities. They do want more young people in the community, right? Um, and uh, they're open to all types of people being in the communities, but they do want a recognition that they are in fact places and they want to define um, their places and not have them defi defined for them. So that those are the things that I hear. If someone wanted to learn more about freedom colonies, what would you advise them to do? Uh, a few things. Um, the atlas that you see online, uh, when someone clicks on a particular dot, there's a drop box associated with every single one of those points. And there are links to information about each one of those settlements. So there will be a link to... Um, the Texas State Historical Association online, which will give you a brief summary of that place, uh, information about that place. We are also, it's a crowdsourcing endeavor. So what that means is that we've had individuals, if you would go and look at, let's say, Camp Town in uh, Washington County near Brenham, uh, there's an individual who knows so much about that place that he has decided to upload images, documents, um, a map of their cemetery. Um, so crowdsourcing basically means that we're legitimizing and inviting the entire uh, public to upload information about every single one of these places. And so we have a combination of grassroots gathered materials, as well as Texas State Historical Association um, information about each of these places. So we're more than just a dot or a map with a bunch of dots. We're really trying to uh, create a multi-dimensional understanding of these places. So there's a lot to be gained from looking at the map. I always advise that people look at um, the book, uh, Freedom Colonies. Um, and I think 
there are lots of opportunities to support in your community African American um, um, heritage um, associated with these places. There are local museums, uh, there are house museums, um, there are small struggling, you know, cultural institutions that are have been for decades um, celebrating and um, preserving the history of these places. They need our support. Um, they need us not to start necessarily new institutions. So, for example, you know, I am really providing this map and this um, re this this reservoir, this place to hold this information and aggregate it, so that as a service, I can produce the type of research, um, the type of advocacy that is only possible by aggregating the information. What I'm not doing is competing with the tons of you know. African-American museums in the state, um, African-American settlements that have their own endeavors um, and organizations. I'm here to support those. And so that's what we need to do is step up and support those existing grassroots Black-led organizations throughout the state that need us. They need our money, they need our time, and they need us to listen. Christina, listening to Dr. Roberts talk about uh, the freedom colonies. I'm reminded of our first episode of our podcast, which was about Clarksville, which was a freedom colony here in Austin. Um, Just down the, a few blocks away from us right now. It was, and it was a community that uh, existed intact up until a relatively few years ago. I'm struck with um, the importance of these communities that Dr. Roberts uh, is drawing our attention to. These are... Um, uh, in the wake of um, the emancipation of June 19th, uh, freedmen organized themselves to form communities. And one of the most important things that you read, uh, that people were talking about then in the African-American community, was the importance of owning land. That that was one thing that they could not take away from you. The desire to have a place that you had stability in was hugely important. And the, in the process of owning land, the freedmen came together and uh, built community. And in a lot of ways, the, this, these communities are the thing that I think a lot of us are still searching for and a lot of us are still missing in our lives. Uh, it's so important that uh, on Juneteenth and, and indeed all the during the year that we... We honor the people who created community back then for folks and that we not let these communities be driven out of existence by public action or developer greed or other things and that we, we all really continue to strive for a community where we can be free and we can prosper. I love that, yeah. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And uh, look for us at texashousers.org and follow us on Twitter at Texas Housers. And as usual, JT will take us out. Mm -hmm.